Welcome to The Deep End by On Deck, a podcast for visionary builders, creators, and thinkers discuss world-changing stories and ideas. I'm your host, Marshall Kozloff. Ultimately, we're at a place today where renewables are cheaper than anybody ever thought that they would be, and they're cheaper than, than, than most fossil fuel sources. What that has enabled is actually thinking about uh, products that we can make without petroleum and and in fact advances in electrochemistry which include like converting CO2 into useful chemicals and fuels and converting water through water electrolysis into things like hydrogen and oxygen. On Deck is where ambitious people worldwide go to start companies, find their next roles, and invest in their careers. The Deep End invites these founders, operators, and investors from the On Deck community and beyond to turn their experiences to the ideas others need to start their own odysseys. Let's dive in. Joining me this week in the Deep End is Dr. Clea Koster. Dr. Koster is a partner and head of science at Lower Carbon Capital. Lower Carbon backs companies that make money, slashing CO2 emissions, and removing carbon out of the atmosphere. Clea leads the firm's technical research, development, diligence, and scientific strategy efforts. She's also a founding fellow of Ondex Climate Tech Programs. Last July, Ondex Climate Director Candice Amori gave us a sense of how climate tech has moved from the one-point era to its 2.0 movement on the heels of evolving policy, innovation, and cultural ambition. Today, Dr. Coaster elaborates on the science informing the quickening pace. She underscores the significance of cheaper renewables, lower battery storage costs, and other trends informing our ability to combat climate change. For more on how On Deck is enabling talented builders to address climate problems, visit beyonddeck.com slash climate. Coster, welcome to the Deep End. Thanks, Marshall. Very excited to be here. So this is a show where I interview a lot of folks in tech, business, venture, etc. I also host podcasts in the newsier space. So this is probably the first time that a topic, decarbonization, has ever felt so newsy for folks. I'm just organically seeing people say, wow, there are serious energy security issues. I mean, y'all have a great thing on the top of your website that says healing the planet and making money aren't mutually exclusive. I think this week I would add healing the planet, making money and promoting security aren't exclusive. So can you just talk about just this opening frame that I'm sure people are really just thinking about a lot right now? Yeah, totally. That, that's, a, that's a new one just because typically people focus on the the on F the planet bit of our uh, <laughs> uh, of our slogan, but yeah, absolutely. Look, so the the way that we, I'm I'm just gonna start by by laying out the way that we think about this. Um, we think about this in three buckets. Reducing emissions is the number one thing that needs to be done. That thesis is pretty straightforward, and the point is that um, that's literally every industry on Earth that needs to ultimately decarbonize, and we can do that through solutions that are ultimately cheaper, better, faster, safer, and tastier, and lower carbon. And that's why the healing the planet isn't a compromise to your bank account and ultimately uh, sets us up to be in a better position from an energy security standpoint and a food security standpoint. And finally, the two combined is pretty much a national security standpoint. 
The second way that we think about um, the second bucket of focus that we have is around removing CO2 from the atmosphere. And I'll save that one for a little bit later because I have a sense that we're going to get into some of those questions. And then the third part is buying more time for people who will get impacted first and worst by climate change. And that's the part that unfortunately is is probably the one that's going to grow the most as we lag in our in our response. Um, but where ultimately there are there are companies to be formed there um, and solutions that become really critical. So yeah, let's actually start with a question I'm sure you ask companies when y'all are um, actually taking pitches. Why now? Because as anyone who has covered the climate space, especially on the climate science perspective, all of the dynamics you're describing have been not only recognized, but really seriously cataloged since the late 80s. So why is the time now for everything you're describing? Why is this a the right time to do this? Well, I mean, it's not the right time to do this at a from a pure science perspective. The right time, like I said, was in the 80s. But from a pure making money, but also doing these things, why is this the right time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in the in the last 10 years, and that's kind of what, um, well, actually, in the last several decades, but uh, I'll highlight the last 10 years because that's kind of the transition from what some people call clean tech 1.0 to where we are today. We've seen a convergence of multiple technologies in the same direction. Ultimately, we're at a place today where renewables are cheaper than anybody ever thought that they would be, and they're cheaper than than most fossil fuel sources. What that has enabled is actually thinking about uh, products that we can make without petroleum and and in fact, advances in electrochemistry, which include like converting CO2 into useful chemicals and fuels and converting water through water electrolysis into things like hydrogen and oxygen. Um, that, that's something that's been enabled by this decline in, in renewable energy costs and ultimately battery storage costs. Um, and, and that and the, the battery storage cost piece has really been thanks to this kind of mass manufacturing of lithium ion batteries that we've seen in the last in the last decade. Some of that has been enabled by uh, by by regulation, but but a lot of that has been enabled by the fact that we're just churning um, millions of these uh, in in very short periods of time, and that's ultimately leading to cost declines. We've seen with the the Nobel Prize winning um, Jennifer Doudna uh, for CRISPR Cas9, um, but ultimately we've also seen that. Synthetic biology and DNA sequencing um, costs are going down at a rate that are even faster than Moore's law, and that brings me to the next piece, which is around computational power and the rate at which computational power has um, has been increasing and cost declining at the same time. And what that has enabled is actually being able to um, model geometries and new hardware configurations in a way that could never be done before. And so that you can actually model systems without having to implement them in real life and iterate on them before then, you know, investing your capital and, and doing so. Um, so I th- I'd say those are those are some of the, the really critical trends in terms of why now. Then, I mean, the other part of it, I think, and we can't omit that is the, is the urgency that's been felt. I mean, whether it's the pandemic or the war in Ukraine and multiple other wars around the world that are being driven by a lack of security of some sort um, or, or or natural resources in, in other cases, there's there's clearly a convergence of things that are leading to a place where we're just recognizing that this is this is just too much. Um, we we're feeling the impacts of climate change on a day to day basis. It's not some distant future anymore. It's it's today. It's now and 
we have the technology to be able to do something about it in a way that's cost effective and in a way that will just set us all up for a much better future. Yeah, I want to go through these three different buckets you just illustrated. But firstly, I don't want to gloss over it for generalist listeners. Can you really describe this clean tech 1.0 period? So basically, this is 10, like 10 15 years ago. Um, my parents work in the climate change space. So I was just, I, I was way too aware of this for a high schooler to be aware of. So I just remember how excited they were. Um, always, so not just on the governmental side, but they were just very excited around the private sector investment side. I don't want to say what went wrong because I think it's a little unfair to people who were building then, but just what quite didn't click is probably the better euphemism. Yeah, and um, I'm I'm probably too young to really speak super intelligently about about clean tech 1.0, but obviously it's a it's an era that I've studied and in going into this. Um, so to your point. It didn't all go wrong. Like um, Tesla and other great companies did come out of that, and ultimately, I think it's pretty safe to say that those are um, that those have enabled a huge part of the um, decarbon decarbonization industry today. One uh, one key difference, and I alluded to this uh, in my earlier point, is that um, I think the paradigm of the time was uh, was still like okay, we, we take advantage of economies of scale. We build things really, really large in order to ultimately bring the, bring the overall kind of levelized cost down. And we didn't know how to build modularized systems in the way that we do today, ultimately enabled again by this kind of mass manufacturing around um, solar photovoltaics and lithium-ion batteries. And there's so much more that goes into that. It's like the, the fact that you can have so many transistors in such a, uh, such a small chip and so on. Um, that mean that you can actually start making things that make sense on a small scale. But I'd say that that's one of the biggest differences between 10, 15 years ago and today where, where we were thinking about, you know, um, carbon capture and storage has been around for a long time. And the prospect of, you know, putting carbon capture and storage plants up on power plants or industrial plants to decarbonize them has literally been around for several decades. But in that vision of the world, it's a $1 billion plant that you need to set up. How do you finance that? What is the what is the financial risk involved? And hence, what's the cost of capital that you assume? And all of, all of that basically conflated just gets to a point where it's just impossible to finance. Whereas today, we're, and, and that's also, today we're also kind of enabled by this huge wave of engineers, whether they were in the software sector or not, but basically just lots of very smart people that are going into this sector and innovating. I think that's also not to say that 10, 15 years ago, there weren't, there weren't these smart people, but the entrepreneurship mindset wasn't, wasn't there in the same way for many, many people around the world. Um, and I'd say that that's also a key part of what has been driving this transition and this desire to build and iterate on smaller systems. Like you can actually prove out um, a DAC, um, a functioning, sorry, direct air capture plant, for example, with $10 million, um, which is a much smaller quantity than having to wait until you have $1 billion of funds raised to actually like demonstrate a full operational plant. Now, I'm sure I'm missing like 10,000 nuances in what has changed between 15 years ago and today, uh, including just like a huge influx of capital and, and stock markets. Uh, soaring and, and inflation and so on. But I think those are those would be the main uh, differences that I'd highlight going from the very large to the modular mass manufactured 
um, small build and iterate entrepreneurship. Yeah, and and it's it's just an important point because I think it I think it gets at what what must be frustrating to you as a person in this space with a, with a serious background in the sense that on the investment money making side, the research side, where those factors are, it aren't always going to line up with what the science is saying and just the broad need. So um, I'd love for you just to, just to speak to that. I, I don't normally like doing background questions, but in your case, I'm interested just because with your background, you could go a variety of different paths, um, aside from the fact that there's money. What, what, what explains your, your, why you're at low, you know, lower carbon capital and taking the specific route, given the issue set you're illustrating? Yeah, totally. Um, well, about just over 10 years ago, I decided to study chemical engineering. Um, and I did that specifically because I wanted to work on climate change and decarbonization. I had followed the, I think it was like COP19 or something that was hosted in, in Copenhagen at the time. And it was an absolute shit show was essentially what the, what the media uh, described, um, which was extremely disappointing because here you were recognizing that climate change was going to be the biggest existential crisis for, um, for in particular, I think what, what, what struck me then was that it was going to continue to, it was going to be the biggest creator of wealth disparity in the world. And it would just further, uh, further deepen that disparity. So I said to myself that I'm, that's going to be my life goal. I'm going to work on climate change and, and um, with basically gather all the tools that I can to be able to work on solving this problem. I didn't know exactly how I would do that, but chemical engineering was the place to start. Um, I, I, I stayed on to do a PhD mainly because I, at the time, the options for a chemical engineer were most of my friends going into finance or strategy consulting, or you go into control, petroleum engineering or, or chemicals production. Uh, and I wanted to um, stay on, get more depth, hone in on a particular technology for decarbonization that at the time was particularly interesting, and that was carbon capture and storage. Um, the, I, I was based in the UK, in London at Imperial College, and, um, and the UK wanted to set itself apart essentially as being kind of a leader in in that space but then in 2015 the i think it was the, the tory party basically pulled out the funding for for ccs and then uh, that that whole thing kind of died i continued with my phd it was it was it was generally very interesting i worked on kind of thinking about techno-economics and actually modeling what it looks like to inject co2 into deep geological reservoirs that's very similar to what you do in the oil and gas industry today and is probably what we're going to see going into the future. And then <laughs> going from that, then I was like, okay, well, I, I have this passion for uh, seeing what it's like to actually um, work on clean energy access in sub-Saharan Africa and see what some of that disparity might look like. Um, and so I spent some time in Nairobi, Kenya, working, um, working with a, a company that was Developing a clean cooking solution, um, essentially a way to to provide a pay-as-you-go mechanism to ha get access to clean cooking fuels, and without getting too much into detail, but um, there are about three billion people around the world that don't have access to clean cooking, which means that every single day, as you cook, uh, you are um, you are contributing to essentially shortening your life and the life of your children, which is very dire, and it and it also further contributes to enormous amounts of deforestation because most of what people use is, is charcoal and, and, and firewood. 
I had I had basically already then set my plan to come to the U.S. and um, and work at a firm called E3, uh, which stands for Energy Environmental Economics. It's it's not a very uh, very shiny firm, but they do extremely important work in that they advise state agencies and governments across uh, and utilities across the U.S. and North America and a little bit internationally on how they are going to achieve their decarbon their um, their net zero goals. And in some cases, a lot of the customers and clients that we worked with didn't have any net zero goals. But what was interesting to see was that we were, for example, um, telling them what was the cheapest way for them to you know, grow their their electricity grid because you, know, you have population growth or maybe you have to retire a power plant. And many times uh, we advise them to invest in X amount of megawatts of solar and battery. And it turned out those were just the economic choices and they were not necessarily, they didn't necessarily care about the emissions implications, but but they cared about it from an economic standpoint. But eventually what I got to was, um, okay, so we're, we're, you know, we're working with the likes of California and, and New York who do have net zero goals in place um, and need to adopt a whole bunch of new technologies to uh, decarbonize their entire grid. And, you know, that's, that's no small um, small thing to do. You can't just put a bunch of solar panels and and battery storage and maybe some wind and have that work out. You need baseload energy. You need um, to grow your transmission capability and ideally have a lot of interconnection. But what I saw was that we were we were essentially relying on you know, technologies that would be potentially available. 10, 20, 30 years down the line and making, you know, general assumptions around how those costs would decline based on like your traditional learning curves. And when I met the lower carbon capital team, and at the time it was a pretty small team, it was still the time of, of where we were a family office. So Chris and Crystal and, and Clay and Alex, essentially, um, their, their messaging really resonated with me. And, and I, and what clicked was that, okay, now this is a fantastic opportunity for me to go on the other side of things where I can actually have an impact and a direct, a direct impact on what technologies to be funding so that we can actually go down that cost curve and ultimately be bending that curve so that we can get to these net zero goals and get to decarbonization much faster than any of these, you know, broad models kind of suggest. Okay. So a theme has come up throughout a couple answers you've given. So you're referencing the fact that oftentimes actually turned out that the renewables were just cheaper. Um, in your opening, you referenced that meat that's or food that's tasty. And then you made reference, obviously, to Tesla. The key thing that unites those three stories is in each of those cases, there is a pro-climate, pro-health, et cetera, et cetera, advantage there. But the three examples you're giving are completely... You could be the most climate denier, climate denier, and those three things would appeal to you. So when you're looking at companies, how do you, you see them successfully balancing those two things? So for example, like I don't think it, it's obviously true that um, Tesla's pro, um, you know, is, is pro um, clean in, in the sense that we're discussing, but I don't think your average consumer would think of them that way. So how do you just think about that? That it's not only the attention, but that dynamic. Yeah, I mean. Like anyone, I mean, we, we, we look for mission alignment. Um, you know, what's what's their motivation in doing this work? Um, and and that's that's mainly because you know if if we're mission aligned, then we know that they will continue to prioritize the things that we deem as most important to prioritize. Ultimately, the the course in which they are um, 
reducing the cost of a particular technology so that it can be adopted at a wide scale rather than like focusing on potentially a niche premium market that won't have a large scale impact. So so that's one but but otherwise it's can you can you ultimately provide a product that is better than the incumbent? And yes, it, obviously initially like the first of a kind iteration might be a little bit more expensive. Um, but ultimately, do you have a clear path to bringing that cost down to a place where it will just be so obvious that 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 is the chosen product over over the incumbent? One example of that is uh, a company that we work with called uh, Solugen that essentially combined um, biological processes and uh, and metal catalysis to create this kind of um, miniaturized uh, chemical plant that produces hydrogen peroxide, amongst many other things, but initially hydrogen peroxide, which is a key ingredient for um, for the oil and gas industry, but also made by the oil and gas industry. Um, and they were making it in a way that was um, just much cheaper and uh, with essentially no emissions and were able to completely undercut uh, an incumbent uh, petroleum-based process. And you know, that's that's what we are. Well, that, that's what we look for. And that's what we're going to continue to see. Uh, another company that we work with called Lilac Solutions has developed an ion exchange technology that uh, that it's a direct lithium, ex- um, direct lithium extraction um, based on ion exchange technology that enables you to extract lithium from very low purity brines, essentially uh, brines, which are like in um, in salt domes in the uh, in the U.S. and and a lot of them are in, are in South America, but uh, these are brines that you otherwise can either are either not able to extract lithium from because it's so dilute, um, or you have these massive evaporation ponds that take multiple years to to make and use a shit ton of water and uh, essentially damage all of their surroundings in the meantime. Um, and the this solution that that Lilac has developed is essentially cheaper and we'll do this like at one ten thousandth of the time scale with one one thousandth of the water consumption or something and that'll just be the better choice <laughs> so we've got the two other buckets sucking up carbon and buying more time but i just i would just love um this, this is actually uh so this is for the audience i'm not not to you um y'all have a great website it's, i have the website open it's actually it's a fun website to sort of just go around so i would love just to go over a couple of the examples of companies and ideas you have um, that, that really just stick out. So for example, like describe three of them and then we'd love to hear just like discourse about what they're doing and how they fit into this cutting emissions um, bit. So for example, um, fully electric planes. Uh, yeah, so so Heart Aerospace. And that's a company that's, that's uh, based out of Sweden. Our founders tell this story much better than I do, but um, but essentially Anders was the... Was the was was the sole founder at the time and CEO came came to them basically with um computer modeled um version of the system and said you know uh, these are all the reasons why I I think this can actually work most people I think pushed him away and said no this is crazy like you can you can never get this um uh, this kind of density of uh, of energy and this size plane while maintaining the load that you need and like the and the lift and so on um but uh but he pursued and now he has uh crazy amounts of orders for this electric plane which essentially is going to become a a critical part of uh of regional travel 
initially in in Europe, but I think many countries are starting to actually ban non um, uh, non sustainable regional regional avi- aviation, and I'm pretty soon it will also just be the more convenient and cheaper option if you don't need to be relying on um, what increasingly is becoming a a real uh, a real security issue around um, around um, fossil fuels. I'm picking these examples purely off of clickbait. Cows that burp less methane. <laughs> uh, yeah, livestock in and of itself is uh, livestock production is fifteen percent of global greenhouse gas emissions. Um, the part of it that's methane uh, that's enteric fermentation specific, I I forget exactly, but methane is also um, while CO two is the most abundant greenhouse gas, methane is one of the most potent. Uh, there are many more that are more potent, but I guess I'd say it's the second most abundant and most potent, meaning that its impact on global warming, for example, over like a 25-year timeline is something like 80 times that of CO2. Uh, and so reducing that has a really significant impact on uh, essentially near-term warming as well as long-term warming. And that that's why that um, that is particularly important. And this is a, this is a space that... Um, that I think we're, we're just going to see so much. Well, it's, it's already a growing space. We're going to see so many more interesting things being built just around the ecosystem is a, a company called Higher Stakes. I think we call it Pigless Bacon on the on the website. Um, but basically the idea of of um, of growing meat in a bioreactor. And while that might sound scary to some, um, ultimately, like I said earlier, um, Livestock livestock production is fifteen percent of global greenhouse gas emissions. That's like one of the single largest um, uh, kind of wedges in the overall greenhouse gas emissions. And as a result of climate change, we're also seeing a really big challenge around food security. Uh, in twenty nineteen, there was something called the African swine flu that essentially killed forty percent of the global pig population. Um, and a lot of people rely on on pork as their like main source of protein. It's a huge uh, piece of of uh, of many cultures around the world, and um, I think it's probably eaten as much as beef, um, if not more, in in many parts of the world. Um, and that kind of disease spreading is just going to continue to happen as a because of climate change and because of these different fluxes. I mean, the latest IPCC report points exactly to to that and to the to the uh, increased risk around infectious disease. So back to the back to the making meat in a bioreactor uh, part of this is why why not go for the world where you are essentially your your bacon your pork belly or whatever it is um, that you go buy at your local butcher um, is actually being made not too far from your local butcher and is not being transported um, for you know, thousands of kilometers uh, not being processed many, many times um, down the line and essentially eliminates the whole like question around uh, hormones and antibiotics that we're currently ingesting in a lot of the meat that we eat um, and you wouldn't have in these kind of circumstances. There's a lot of things that still need to be figured out there, uh, the scaling up. I mean, generally scaling up uh, biological systems is not easy um, and far, far from it. Um, but that's a... That's a direction that I am particularly excited about um, for for humanity at large, really. And just a quick one. I wanted to go back um, to Muthral and, and the cows and methane. To just a certain degree, I should probably just have founders on and not push you too much on this. But I just, I'm just curious. 
Could you explain the business model with that? Because so, for example, like you said, it reduces it reduces the amount of methane. Do farmers care in the abstract how much? So, it, what's the advantage for the farmer in that transaction? So, if we're going by this idea of well, the renewables are cheaper, the you know non meat meat is tastier. Like, what's the version of that in this context? Yeah, I mean, um, in the EU, uh, you do have a you you do have a, a regulated carbon market that essentially uh, that essentially prices uh, prices CO two at, at I think the latest was something like $90 per ton of CO2. So there is very much a clear incentive around that. In fact, uh, I think the EU has specific regulation around um, around this feed. Uh, so generally, I think that that's, that's probably where we're going to start. And I think like many other things, we're just growing, growing a lot of awareness and consumer choice is also driving a lot of this. No, that's, that's fast. And it just, it just brings up the, it's, it's funny in, in the American context, there's so much pessimism around government action that I didn't even just have the mental frame of. You realize there's a regulatory structure um, that exists in the year in, in Europe. So that's that's a really helpful. But but there's point. there's one other thing that I would add there. Sorry, I, I blanked on it for a minute. But um, there there is also a, a a yield benefit for farmers in this feed additive in that um, I'm forgetting the numbers, but it, it basically substantially increases the the yield of dairy production in these particular types of cows. Um, so there is also a monetary incentive around it, um, and and there are, yeah. If you start if you start looking into that space, there, it's it's an area where there's a lot of research being done, um, and it's pretty fascinating. So yeah, so we've got the two other buckets that we'll hit. Um, so yeah, let's just just please give me your longest, most eloquent monologue on. Um, you know, sucking up carbon um, and, and that bit. Sure. Um, so I'll break down some of the numbers. Um, basically, since the since the industrial Re- revolution, we've emitted about two trillion tons of of CO two. Not all of that is in the atmosphere. It's usually some split some split between uh, the atmosphere and the ocean and 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 biomass. Um, but what that has resulted in is uh, close to a fifty percent increase in the atmospheric concentration of CO2. We've gone from 280 ppm, some 200 so fi- so years ago, 250 years ago, to 419 parts per million today. That sounds really small, and it is only parts per million, but that difference is uh, what's driving the the current global impact um, uh, that is that is climate change. Um, other key numbers to note. Um, are around the the rate of emissions that we have today. So on an annual basis, today we emit about 50 billion tons of CO2 every year. Um, And of that total 2,000 um, 2000 billion tons of CO2, about half of that, I think it is, uh, has basically been emitted in the last like 30 to 50 years, which is a a crazy number. But um, but basically, if um, if we, even if we, reduce uh, our emissions to zero, we will essentially still be in a place where that overall concentration is, is too high. And um, the number that if you if you're familiar that the IPCC re- that the latest IPCC reports have highlighted is that 1.5 degrees C kind of on an, which is an average global temperature increase is kind of the limit of before we hit some really, really dangerous like irreversible type 
climate change uh, impacts. And that's not to say that we're not already feeling them today. And that's not to say that we won't feel them at what point at 1.5 C. But um, but that's kind of a um, based on the probabilities, that's where there is a is a flipping point. Um, and what between today and 1.5 C, we have a budget of about 400 billion tons. So we've already increased overall temperature by uh, an average of one degree C. And so 400 billion tons, 50, million, 50 billion tons per year, that's eight years of like of carbon budget. Um, so the likelihood that we get to zero in eight years is unfortunately very low. Um, even, even if we did, um, as I mentioned earlier, that overall concentration is, is already too high. And so if we want any chance of reversing the impacts of climate change, we need to remove CO2. But then beyond the fact that we're probably not going to reach zero in eight years, um, far from it, uh, we will need carbon removal to make up for that difference. And we're probably going to, we're going to need that for a very long time. Um, in part also because there are certain emissions that we can't that we will probably have a very hard time controlling, uh, particularly around land use change. Um, and it's it's one of those things, it's like a, there's these dual effects because the planet is warming. Um, so we have more wildfires, more frequent wildfires, longer fire, longer, uh, longer fire periods. That also leads to more emissions. Um, and so it's 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 a little bit of a of a vicious cycle and we can't fully control those. So we'll so we would then need to remove more CO2 as a result. Um, so that's the, hopefully that that condensed it somewhat, but that's the overall picture for why we need to remove CO2. Um, and basically that's an industry that we need to create from scratch. Um, today we're removing on the order of some thousands of tons of CO2 on an annual basis. And remember, and we need to get to somewhere on the order of 10 billion tons. So that's a... Here's what I'm curious about once again, because I've been plugged into these these debates. I'm I'm really curious. The space that we're talking about is one where, given the fact that these conversations have gone on so long, in activist communities, more politically policy minded, because there's just a lot of cynicism. So for example, to bring this back to 2006, 2007, I remember when, at least in certain parts of this space, talking about carbon capture and storage was seen as oh, that's just an oil company or a coal company making an excuse for an ad. It's not serious. But it seems like genuinely there's been a, once again, 10 years is a long time when it comes to these type of scientific processes. So can you just speak maybe to the cynicism that people may have when it comes to these sorts of technologies and development, even cynicism where what people keep telling us the renewables will get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, but it just doesn't feel like it's ever happening. Can you just speak to that inclination with folks, I, I'm not a behavioral scientist, so I can't I can't exactly speak to to why people continue to be cynical. I think it's generally because people are afraid of change. Um, I think the the thing with with solar, wind, and batteries is that, yeah, people never expected those costs to go down to the cost that they are at today, and the the cost that they're at today is is I mean that that's real. It's um, for solar that's somewhere between um, less than five cents a kilowatt hour, um, the, those cost declines are are very real. And that's what was completely unexpected um, for, for some, um, at least. 
And in terms of in terms of carbon capture and storage, the cynicism around that at the time was was probably was pretty well warranted because a lot of that was thinking of CCS as um, as a means to to decarbonize uh, power plants, for example. There weren't that many options 10, 15 years ago when solar, wind, and batteries and, and energy storage weren't as cheap as they are today. Um, but also then there was the whole like uh, carbon offsets bonanza, which was kind of a, a greenwashing play. I mean, we can we we should get into that. But um, but what we're looking at today is a place where we need to reduce emissions. We need to reduce emissions as much as we can. Ideally, we need to reduce all emissions, but even when we do that, we will still need to remove CO2 from the atmosphere, which is very different from deciding to burn fossil fuels and capture the CO2 off of that you know, exhaust pipe or flue gas um, from that power plant and storing it in the ground where you're not actually you're not actually reducing the overall CO2 that is already in the atmosphere. You're just making sure that there isn't more that's going in there. And just a quick, quick follow up then too. Could you just explain um, what greenwashing is for the audience, and then we'll get into just the last buying our time segment. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't particularly. I'm not a big fan of the, of the term. I'm not a big fan of the concept. Um, that's it. That's actually really, that's actually interesting. So I don't need you. So fair. You know, why, why aren't you a fan? That's a better question, given your perspective. I, I think it's generally just the idea of uh, trying to be constructive rather than rather than destructive. Um, Yes, we 100% need to call out the oil and gas industry for the shit that they've pulled and uh, and the fact that they can't just buy offsets that are like a dollar per ton of CO2 or whatever, or like say that they're planting trees somewhere and never look to it or make sure that, you know, that, that, that those trees are even still in place or that they're not like displacing some agricultural land somewhere else. Um, we definitely need to make sure that they don't do that um, and never do that again. But call, calling out that they're calling out that they're greenwashing, I don't really know what that helps. I think we need to find solutions to be able to for everybody to work together to be able to um, for the oil and gas companies and others and others that have contributed to this, which also includes nations as a whole, um, to be accountable for the emissions that they've put into the atmosphere and uh, take responsibility for them and implement solutions that will essentially lead to reversing the negative impact that we've already had uh, on, on earth and that will ultimately be impacting those that are most vulnerable and poorest, um, which I think then leads, leads us to the buying more time piece. Yeah, I know. And that's really, honestly, I, I, I like any opportunity that people will be encouraged to be positive because I, I think that's been the best part um, about coming into the, the, the tech space from, from an outside one, just the, that need is an important one, and I think it speaks to the um, anti-cynicism bit. But yeah, so please just to read a quick line on this from you all. Um, you know, when you're talking about buying more time, like we're referencing temperature increases, fires, droughts, storms, only getting worse. Please just explain this side of it specifically. Yeah, and um, I can talk about it through through an example of a company that we work with called um, called cloud to street that um, that does flood mapping um, using a combination of, of data sources including uh, different types of satellite data um, and ultimately what that what that can lead to is a place where you have um, where you're kind of disrupting the the existing like 
um, parametric insurance um, that uh, that's in place for this that where you only essentially get paid back for what you lose as opposed to um, as opposed to actually being able to 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 get paid back for to to build something that is more resilient um, and then the other piece is actually being able to account for what has been destroyed and uh, if you need a person to go um, to go to wherever the flood is and like measure exactly what happened um, and you don't have that live data then you're in a you're in a much less favorable position in terms of being able to actually uh, recover recover those losses and the reality is that floods droughts wildfire wildfires are all just going to be happening more frequently unfortunately and so we need much better tools to be able to monitor them and um, and ap appropriately uh, finance the the recovery um, and and fast. So um, the other the other thing that uh, that I'll call out in the and and this is this is not uh, obviously not uh, private companies doing this, but we do fund research around um, solar geoengineering and and solar radiation management. Um, which is a heavily under-researched area um, that creates a lot of controversy because of the term geoengineering. The reality is that we have geoengineered the heck out of the out of the earth uh, with you, everything. Could you explain geoengineering for folks and why it's controversial? So, geoengineer or solar geoengineering rather is is basically the idea of of um, buying more time via. Uh, enabling more cooling, essentially uh, um, re-reflecting uh, a lot of so solar radiation back to the atmosphere. Um, so as to, I mean, the idea um, and you know the the kind of science fiction version of that Ministry of the Future gave a gave a good good um, or gave an interesting painted an interesting picture of um, uh, of the the kind of geopolitical challenges around. Um, around that, but also just the implications um, of, of climate change and what might lead you to a place where um, where you're considering those options. And I'm by no means saying that we should ever consider doing solar geoengineering, but it's important that we understand what those tools are. And um, it, in the event that we get to a place where we're at a tipping point where we can't reverse the impacts that we've had, um, that we've had on the earth and in particular where you have, you know, populations that are, uh, being devastated by heat waves or other natural disasters. And, um, that, I mean, that's really the scariest thing, right? Is that we are getting, we're getting so close to a point where we can trigger tipping points. Tipping points are things that, that, uh, will trigger further, very large scale, um, emissions or ecosystem destruction that we essentially wouldn't really be able to reverse. Um, and that's, that's why it's just important to understand all of those implications um, and what buying more time might mean. Um, so there's something like $10 million or something, I think, of research to date that's gone into solar radiation management. A lot of that led by um, a group at, at Harvard, I believe, um, David Keith. Um, and I think there's a pretty good argument to say that there, we should just understand this better. I've noticed more and more founders, investors, people entering the tech industry come, coming from academic backgrounds because they see a lot of very interesting options that weren't open to them in the past 
But with options come too many options, it seems to be paralyzing. How do you suggest, given your background, people think about that type of uh, opportunity that's in front of people? So, so it's an it's an definitely an interesting point to highlight that there are um, that there are more, more folks coming from academia that are going into entrepreneurship or um, or or going onto the investor side. What's fantastic is that there are these opportunities now. There are um, the the amount of money that's going towards climate tech investing is huge. Um, I'm forgetting the numbers off the top of my head, but I think we're we're on the order of at least tens of billions, which was not the case just a few years ago. And I think, and I hope, and I what we'll con- we'll continue to see is that um, is that these investors are recognizing that there's some really interesting things to be investing in in the deep tech, hard tech space. A lot of the things that you and I just talked about that are you know not not a SaaS business. Not that some SaaS businesses aren't valuable, but there there are a lot of um, hard tech innovations that are really interesting um, to be pursuing and that have the potential to have you know SaaS like returns. Um, and those do require a certain skill set and a certain certain type of of um, of background in um, engineering and science and, um, and and other disciplines. And it's great to see those increasingly valorized within the investment space. And I think well, I, I think we're just going to see more of that. Um, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, I mean, find find what you're good at. Find what find what makes you click. Um, uh, find what you can pitch with passion and that you will want to dedicate the next, you know, 10, 15 years of your life to. Um, it is very laudable to be an entrepreneur and a founder, um, but it is far from easy. Uh, I think everybody who has, who has been a founder and entrepreneur um, knows that and will, and will repeat that to you. It, is, it can be extremely rewarding. And if you have that, that itch, I highly encourage you to, to go for it. Um, but you need to know that, well, you need to know what you're getting into and, um, and you need to have that passion. So choose something that gets you really excited that wants you to, that, that gets you to, you know, up in the morning and, and gets you pushing hard. So, um, that, that's what I'd say to the, the founders and, and people wanting to work in climate out there. That's a great call to action. Let's close with this then. I really enjoyed this episode. What is a space or an idea you're really excited at that you would suggest people look into um, in terms of like research, entrepreneurship, et cetera, but that you all are not covering right now at the moment? Um, a thing that we haven't haven't covered explicitly, but I think we'll be covering more of is um, around broader resource scarcity. Um, and I'd call out water in particular. I think fresh water is some like 1% of global water and that's just declining as the planet gets warmer um, and the population grows. Access to fresh water will become more and more scarce. Um, and so I think there's a lot of really interesting innovation that can be um, that can be brought to that space. And it's an area that we want to look, that we want to spend more time in um, and that I would encourage others to think about, you know, it's, I mean, it's it's all so interrelated. None of these things should ever be thought of in silos. Um, where, you know, carbon and CO two is very often used as a proxy for many many other things. And um, and water is a critical resource that we are just going to need more of and have and have less of as a result. So that that would be an area that I would call out. Um, 
And then maybe the other one is around um, is around refrigeration and particularly around refrigerant recycling, which um, refrigerants are one of the most potent greenhouse gases out there. And um, it's also what drives your refrigerator and HVAC systems. And without properly recovering those, you have you have refrigerant leaks, which I think is something like on the order of a thou- thousands of um, thousands of times the global warming potential that CO2 does, uh, CO2 has. Um, so I would encourage people to go work on that too. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us in the deep end. This has been a great episode. Thanks, Marshall.